everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spent about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our podcast series on Shemot focuses on identity and nationality formation. We're going to try and address the big biblical themes of slavery, redemption, society building, and commitment to a binding code of law, as well as explore together with our guests how we can anchor these big ideas in our modern lives. Save the date. Motzei Shabbat, February 4th, we will be holding a peek into the Matan podcast event at Meshach 48 in Gush Etzion. Dr. Yael Ziegler and myself will be talking Tanakh Torah with our moderator and owner of Meshach 48, Devorah Katz, over light refreshments. Sunday, February 5th, Matan's Jerusalem branch will be having a Tubishvat event with a shiur by Rabbi Nitshani Targan and a Seder Tubishvat. Visit the Matan website for more information and to register. This week's episode has been dedicated in memory of cantor Jacob Rosenbaum, Yaakov Tzvi ben David, by his granddaughter Dara Goldschmidt. He is remembered as being intentional about his grandparenting, instilling in his grandchildren a love for Israel, as well as using his cantorial skills to teach them songs that continue to play in their mind and hearts. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at Parshad B'Shalach begins as the Israelites leave Egypt and ends with the war against Amalek. In this light, on their way to freedom, the nation is flanked by military obstacle. The emotion of regret also features. First, God is concerned that the people might regret their exodus from Egypt and thus takes them on a different route farther from the Egyptian troop encampments. Next, we learn that Paro and his servants regret their allowance of the Israelites' exit. The chase is on until the Egyptians are sunk into the depths of the ocean while the Israelites walk through safely to the other side. After the miraculous sea crossing, which will be the topic of today's conversation, we meet a series of complaints as the people begin their travels in the desert. Not enough water, not enough food, not enough meat, not enough water again. This initial exit is really disheartening. The slave people experiences a rough transition into a new supernatural existence, which requires more effort and faith than they may have anticipated. It feels a little bit like boot camp, or what we call tironut here in Israel. And like most young soldiers report, it's a pretty disastrous moment in time as one adjusts to an entirely new circumstance, however temporary it may be. This is because the change is not merely physical, from a land of plenty to the desert's desolation, but also theological. They are forging a new mindset and relationship with God that will take years to actually solidify. The conclusion of the Parsha, with Amalek's attack, makes it clear that long-term travel in the desert is unsustainable. A permanent home marking the Israelites' permanent residence will be necessary. I'm thrilled to welcome back Rachel Sharansky-Danziger to our podcast. She first joined us for episode 63 on Parshat Chukat to discuss Moshe's leadership style, and then for episode 86, where we spoke about the episode of Dina. Rachel blogs about the intersection between life, parenting, history, and text for the Times of Israel, 929, Kfeller, and other online venues. This year, Rachel is teaching two courses at Matan's Jerusalem branch, an English course in the Book of Shemot and a Hebrew course on Shoftim. She also teaches virtually at Yeshivat Marat in New York City and at Mayan Torah from the Sources in Boston. Rachel, it is wonderful to have you back here. 
Thank you, Yosefa. It's really my honor and my privilege. You should know that I do not stop hearing people's feedback about your perspective on the family of Yaakov as immigrants. It literally comes, I would say, at least once a week. Somebody comes up to me and says, wow, and that episode on Dina, I was like, I know. (laughs) I am so honored to talk to you. So I want to bring us into the the Shmot frame, uh, which actually years ago, you should know, I think I heard you once uh, online. I heard a a shir you'd given on on the story of the Exodus. And we've left Egypt, so to speak, and we're on our way out. And there's something about this Parsha that feels pretty transitional about it. So let's jump right into that. I absolutely agree with you, Yosefa. It is a transitional Parsha. In many ways, this is a Parsha when we stop looking backwards as a people, or at least primarily backwards, and start looking forward. And what I find really intriguing, and I think psychologically insightful, is the way that the parting of the sea is framed both in this parsha, but even more so in the way it's treated by the rabbis later, as somehow bigger, more impressive, more important than the Exodus itself. In Agadat Shel Pesach, the rabbis explain that it's times five more impressive, more revelatory of God's power and presence than Yetziat Mitzrayim, which of course raises the question, why? After all, the exodus was the moment we waited for. This was the moment we were building up to. This was what the promise was, all the way to Brit Ben Abtarim. Do you know what's the biggest proof for that question? <laughs> which is funny, when, you, when we, I sort of saw your notes before we started recording, I thought to myself, oh my goodness, how did I never think about this question beforehand more in depth? But what proves this question is the fact that when we retell the story of the Exodus, we don't do it from the Psukim and Sefer Shmot. Meaning the Haggadah draws on Psukim and Sefer Dvarim, which themselves are reflective Psukim back on the story, because there's not really much to say. There aren't really many Psukim, and you sort of like flip through Parakid Bet, or the Parak that we focused on in last week's episode, and you're like, wait, where, where? Where, where's, where's the exodus? Where, where did it go? And it's because there's really nothing there. And so when we try and retell the story later, the psukim and later places in Tanakh almost never take psukim from the book of Shemot because there's really nothing to draw on. It's almost as if the text there in previous week's Parsha reflects the rush of the leaving itself. Mm. The people are rushing yeah. and the text is rushing over it. And we're all left with this feeling of things left unfinished. Their baking didn't finish, Mm. you know, their dough didn't finish rising, our understanding of events didn't finish evolving, and before we know it, we're already moving forward, and we reach this much grander and more impressive moment, miraculous moment, of the parting of the sea. Not only is it more impressive, it's also the moment that inspires them to sing. It's kind of remarkable when you think about it that we don't hear anything about singing when they leave Egypt. You might think that, you know, a slave walking out of the place where he was enslaved would burst into song or feel grateful, but we don't hear anything about that. In fact, we hear about their anxiety. We'll talk about it in a bit, but we hear about their anxiety, their uncertainty, and then only after the parting of the sea, they're in a place where they author their version of events and speak about God in this happy celebratory way. Right, and so I guess our big question is, what happened, right? What, What created that change of mood or, or atmosphere, right? That That's the question we're sort of here to unpack. Yes, and I think that in order to unpack it, we should really look at it from several angles. The first angle I'd like to focus on is the, f- the angle of the people's own experience of what's happening to them. 
because we, reading the story millennia later, already knowing where it's going, we see that there's a complete narrative arc. We see that they were slaves in Egypt, and then God took them out, and they went through the road of trials, and they went into the land of Israel and became a sovereign nation. Now, we also know that that didn't resolve all our problems or become easy or anything like that, but there's a very clear sense of direction in this story. Now, put yourself in the shoes or perhaps the sandals of an Israelite slave. And let's not talk about Moshe and Aaron and the Skinim, who are presumably better informed and in God's confidence here. Until a second ago, you did what Perot told you to do. Now you're doing what God told you to do. You have this promise that was given to you a few weeks earlier that one day your children's children are going to be telling the story of what's happening to you right now. But what is happening to you right now? Do you know what's going on? Do you understand the significance of it? Did the people even know that they're for sure not coming back? Because there's some ambiguity in Moshe's communication with Parol about that. Mm. At first, he's only asking, can we leave for a few days? And he doesn't say anything one way or another about coming back. Did the people share this feeling of confusion or were they in on the actual plan? It's not, you know, it's easy looking back to give meaning and shape to events, whether our own lives or stories we hear from the past. We use the end point of the story to attribute meaning or find meaning in everything that led to it. But until you experience an end point of any sort, It can go many directions. It can be many things. And in many ways, what the parting of the sea gifts the people is some sort of an end point. Mm. It's an end to this week of travel from the land of their subjugation to this moment when they all see with their own eyes the drowned Egyptians, where they all had to walk through the opened waters and see this miracle taking place. And I think that adds a layer or add a nuance to the fact that they're singing afterwards because to sing you need to author a story you need to say this is what happened this is a narrative it's at this point that they have enough clarity looking back to do that to speak in narrative terms look I think this is a, a brilliant point psychologically and it's interesting I just came off of a session with a group of teachers and we were speaking about really the emotional variance and depth that one can draw from different stories in Tanakh. And we were speaking about how to appropriate that into the classroom with students and look at the Tanakh as a sort of source of emotional wisdom and look inside before looking outside. And one of the women said in the classroom this idea that what's really what's really difficult is that in Tanakh, because we have stories, we, we know what the end is. But so often when a student is coming to you and speaking to you, they're in the middle of their tunnel. They don't they don't know what's going to be in the end. And so, you know, it takes Yosef years, decades to get to, you know, a, an understanding of the fact that this was all meant for the better and he sees a broader plan. But but most of us don't have those moments in life. And it's interesting because I can think about moments in my own life where I thought to myself, at some point I'm going to be able to tell this in a linear story, but right now I'm not in that space. And there's something about that thought that sometimes actually comforts me, and so, you know that says I I don't know how to put these pieces together right now, but but my moment of faith is to say that I know that at some point I'll be able to give it a frame. And what you're saying so beautifully is that well, even in a fairly small amount of time, that people were able to come to at least an initial frame. Right? They're going to have a lot of struggle throughout their years in the desert, but they're going to be able to have a first initial frame of how to 
perceive and remember their initial exodus from Egypt, but it's not necessarily the moment of exodus itself. We might have thought that that would have been the formative moment, but for reasons that I hope we'll unpack together, actually, for some reason, crossing the sea was that moment for them. First, I focused on narrative clarity, on gaining a sense of clarity of what's happening to them, and that really hinges, I think, on the ending, on watching the sea close. The truth is that another enormous transition happens on the shore before they cross and as they start crossing. But in order to understand why it's so powerful or why it's so significant, I think we should take a few steps back and look at the beginning of the Parsha. Great. Because in the beginning of the Parsha, we run into a word that seems out of place. And that is the very first word, the word Vayehi, now when, as we usually translate it. Now, it seems innocent enough, but the truth is, as Rabbi Tzadok Akwan Melublin points out, this is a word that's often associated with mourning. It's a, close, it's, an, it's a word that echoes the word nehi, crying in Hebrew, and which raises the question, why in this moment, when we're finally describing coming out of Egypt, and we're talking about this momentous shift that we've been waiting for since the days of Avraham in one way or another, and Brit ben Abturim, why are we using a word associated with mourning? Why taint this moment with this shade of regret? So Rabbi Tzadok Akoen thinks that the answer lies in the next two words. Vayehi b'shalach paro. Now when paro, let the people go. Because the mourning is not the people's, according to Rabbi Tzadok Akoen. It's ours, it's God's, it's Moshe's, over the fact that even now, as they're marching out of Egypt, the people on some fundamental level are not truly free. They are still leaving because Paro let them. Mm-hmm. And this means that the whole exodus is not God winning his war against Paro, against the system Paro presents, proving that he is the king of the world, that there are absolute right and wrong, that might doesn't make right. It's not that. It's an arrangement between the powers to be that allows the Jews to, or the Israelites to leave under the auspices of the king that abused them earlier. And even though we know that Parot only let them go under great duress, in the experience of the people at that moment, they're not experiencing a clean break from Parot's power. They're experiencing a new chapter in an ongoing saga of being people under Parot's power. And the truth is that we have other indications in the same pasuk and in the following one that not only are they still on in some fundamental level under Paro's power, but they're not even that convinced that they want to leave and that they're not even that sold on the whole idea. We hear the next words after Vayahi b'shalach paro am are velo nacham elokim derech eretz plishtim and God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, ki who, although it was near, or because it was near, ki amar elokim, pein inachem ha'am, birotam ilchama, v'shavu mitzrayma. For God said the people may have a change of heart when they see war and return to Egypt. As you said before, God worries that they will regret this moment. They do not have the internal conviction, the, the internal spine of conviction, so to speak, if I'm allowed to mix my metaphors here, yes. to withstand pressure. 
In the very next pasuk, in pasuk yud chet, in parak yud gimel, it says, "Chamushim alu bnei Israel meretz Mitzrayim," that the Israelites went up armed out of the land of Egypt. But Rashi doesn't read it like that. Rashi adds another interpretation, saying "Chamushim." can mean armed, or it can mean fifth, that only a fifth of them actually came out. Either, as Rashi says, based on the Midrash, because four-fifths of them died in the plagues, or, as other uh, Darshanim and Parshanim suggest, because they chose not to. They were too scared. Mm. So we're watching here not, you know, the powerful, convinced, determined progression of people on a mission filled with motivation, we're watching here a group of hesitant people who leave some of their families behind, either dead or alive, who are hoping for the best, who are going because Perot let them. And this is extremely dangerous because if the purpose of the exodus was merely to remove the shackles of Perot, great. But they're supposed to become a nation. They're supposed to fight wars. They're supposed to create a covenant with God. How can they do it if they lack conviction. How can they do it if, at the first sign of trouble, they might decide to run back with their tail between their legs? Yeah, you know, I think that this this emotional space of of regret or or uncertainty, while we will come to a high point in a few moments, they're going to keep returning to this space. And I think that ultimately, and this is suggested in many psukim throughout the Torah, ultimately God is going to leave this generation because he's going to he's going to come to understanding that this is not the raw material that I'll be able to rely on for our next big stage, right? There's something also ironic here, mm-hmm. but the fact that I mean these they're going to be the they're the stepping stone essentially for our ultimate arrival into Eretz Israel. But there's some there's going to be something about this generation that their their psychological fiber is going to struggle really till the end. There's something tragic about that, right? There and there's also something simply true, meaning how long will it take me, sort of says God, quote unquote to himself, to create a confidence in in my people and the answer will be a generation so we're going to see that they're going to come to an, a slight place of resolution soon but but this kind of uncertainty is going to is going to keep coming up throughout the stories in the desert it's definitely going to linger but i would still argue that there's a qualitative difference between their uncertainty now and after the yes. sea partially just in the sense that right now it's a real possibility to go back Yes. And in a way, closing the sea also closes the door on this possibility. And their fantasies of return later are just that. They're fantasies, very natural fantasies, I think. It's very scary to suddenly lead a totally different life where so much more is expected from you in terms of self-starting, in terms of faith, in terms of shaping reality and not just being shaped by it. But we need that moment of closure for the fantasies to become fantasy. Yeah, I love and that frame. I love that phrase. That's, possibility. that's excellent. Yes. And, you know, it's it reminds me of a very different time in a very different place, millennia later, um, of the United States of America when they were not the United States of America, on the British colonies in North America on the eve of the American Revolution, where also there was this question hanging over the people, do we leave of course, they're leaving doesn't mean leaving. It means disconnecting from England, rebelling against England. Or do we stay? Do we allow ourselves to be still part of the British Empire? And when we delve a little bit under the surface of the triumphant accounts of the American Revolution that 
little kids learn on the 4th of July, you know, we see that they too, the people in the colonies, felt an enormous amount of uncertainty about what they should do and where things will go. And even, for example, someone like John Adams, who was a supporter of the revolution long before it actually happened, was concerned about that state of mind. John Adams spent a lot of the Second Continental Congress trying to defeat the arguments of the moderate faction in the Congress. Those people who at the time were numerous, who thought, yes, it's not okay what the British government is demanding from us, all the taxes, all the abuses, but it's not the king. If only we would get through to the king, the king would create a better government, would send better commanders, would work with us and we, we, we can fix things. We don't need to break away from the British Empire, from the monarchy. We just need to reform our relationship. And John Adams spent a lot of time trying to tell them that it's too late and it is the king and they're deluding themselves if they're thinking that it's just a bad minister or two that need to be removed. And then late in 1775, uh, King George III pretty much won the argument for him by releasing the Prohibitory Act which declared the colonies to be in a state of rebellion and sent troops to uh, the New World, as it was still called at the time. Mm. And you might think that John Adams would be dancing on the tables in the tavern in glee because this is it. Now the moderate faction's cause has evaporated. Instead, as we know from his letters from the time, he was extremely concerned and disconcerted because he felt that the people are not ready. And by forcing the decision on them, George III deprived them of the time to reach their own conclusion and gain their own conviction that this is the right thing to do. And he was very concerned that in the war for independence, because it was clear that it's going to be a long and difficult war, this lack of conviction will translate into defeat, into desertion, into jumping on bad compromises. As uh, historian Joseph Ellis puts it, he was worried that he's going to lead a parade that no one's going to march in. So there are two points that come up for me. One is, I love this piece about how we often generalize about history and we assume that things went one way, but when we look deeper with the microscope, we see that things were much less clear in the moment. That's always something that actually strengthens me in moments of of questioning, right? That most people in the moment of are seeing things through complex eyes and it's not necessarily so clear. And then, you know, many, many years later when we know who was the victor or who was, the, the def- who was defeated, we tend to sort of project that onto what we thought happened then. That's always a really, a really powerful point. Uh, I also think this point here about the word independence, which is a word that's coming up for me as you speak, is critical, meaning there is a part of the people, they had to somehow be released from Paro, ideally released on their own account from Paro, and claim their own independence for themselves. And that's something we're going to also see them coming up against so often in their time in the desert. But just like here in this case, the colonies needed to gain their independence, and John Adams wanted them to have to have claimed it on their own so that they would feel that conviction deep in their bones. So to the, the Jewish people, right, the Israelites needed, needed to declare their independence in some sort of way. And how, how does that happen in our story of the sea? I think that the way it happens, the way they stop being free because of Paro, Bashalach Paro, and become 
free internally, free with a conviction to back up this freedom. I think the way it happens lies in a conversation that takes place in the moment of high tension right before the parting of the sea between the people and Moshe and God. Mm. The people come to Moshe and they are panicked and scared and they're screaming. They're so akim, right? And they say these strong words. They say, Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you had to take us to die here? And Moshe tries to soothe them. He tries to reassure them that just as God helped them until this point, God will continue helping them. In other words, the type of theological reassurance he offers them is, have faith in God. He says, Al tirau, hitietzvu, uru et yeshuat Hashem asher yaselechem ayom. Have no fear, stand by, witness a deliverance, uh, which the Lord will work for you today. And he even says, Hashem ilachem lachem v'atem tacharishun. The Lord will battle for you, you hold your peace. But when he turns to God, God rejects this method out of hand. God says, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. And as they go forward, you raise your hand over the sea and open it up, etc. But the action, the choice to act can't come from God opening a door. It's time for the Israelites to force the door open. This reminds me of a story I grew up on, a story of, uh, my father, Natan Sharansky, shared with me about his time after his arrest in Moscow in 77, when the KGB was preparing his case against my father. He was accused of treason, um, which was an offense, a crime that's punishable by death in the Soviet Union. And for 13 months, my father was in prison, being interrogated in preparation for this trial. And what the KGB wanted was not merely to punish a person who dared to stand up for human rights and for his right as a Jew and other people's rights as Jews to leave and go to Israel. What they wanted was for him to recant. They wanted to break him, to get him to make some sort of public declaration of regret and that really the Soviet Union is the paradise for all workers and nobody should leave it and everything is great here, and then use that to break the spirit of the movements he was part of, the movements for human rights on the one hand and the, movements, the Zionist movement in Russia on the other. And they tried to use fear and intimidation to get him to do that. They started dropping the word rastrel, which means death by firing squad, into every interrogation several times. And they would look at him and they would see the way he would freeze for a moment and pale, and they would keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And my father, knowing that he must not break down, realized that he needs to somehow take his rational conviction that he should not break down and translate it into a better instinctual or emotional defense. He somehow had to rid himself from this fear that this word evoked in him every time. And he thought about it, and he said, and I'm obviously shortening and generalizing the story a lot, but he reached the conclusion that he is willing to accept death as an acceptable cost of the causes he believes in. And fear only works if you think that survival is the ultimate value. The second you really accept that survival is less important than integrity, then fear recedes. 
But while that's true in principle, he also needed to somehow make it true for himself emotionally. And he did it by starting to drop the word rastrell into conversations himself. So instead of them scaring him with this word, he started owning this word and saying, yeah, I know you're thinking about how you'll have to rastrell me or, you know, a similar sentence in Russian. And he enjoyed the shock it created in them, it, it caused them. But more than that, he enjoyed the feeling of ownership that he regained over himself, over who he is and what he is and what he stands for. In many ways, I think that whenever I read this moment by the sea, when God says, why are you calling out to me? Start going, move forward. I feel as if God is pushing the Israelites to make the same decision. He says, until now, I led you more or less hand in hand to this point in time, to this test. But now you need to look at the sea You need to accept the fear of drowning and the possibility of drowning as an acceptable cost of leaving Egypt behind and Pharaoh's power behind. You need to embrace it, to choose it, and then the door will open. It's time for you to break through the barrier. It's time for you to make a commitment. It's at this moment that I think they coalesce into something beyond released or freed slaves that are under Pharaoh's power or God's power. This is a moment where they come to be under their own power where the exodus becomes their own and therefore something they can sing about and narrate and use as inspiration as they move forward. You know, I'm thinking about the Midrashim uh, that we have about Nachshon ben Aminadav and about the fact that the Midrash pulls that moment of fear and deliberation up into the moment that the water is actually at their necks, right? And it, it elaborates and strengthens this feeling that up until the moment they almost died, they didn't know where it was going to go from there. And I guess when I think about what created that moment of transition and the unbelievable story about your father, which I could do nothing except listen to, I'm not even going to pretend to respond to it, in that moment of transition in his life and the moment of transition in the people's life, my question is, okay, is it, is it a cognitive decision, which is the way it sounded in the story with your father? It's this cognitive choice that he then figures out how to translate emotionally so then it digs deeper in him and it remains deeper. I think that the Torah also presents, certainly through the prism of the Midrash, where we have one person who says, let's go, we're going in, they display that moment as their moment of faith, meaning God pushes them and says, get in there, keep going, don't turn to me. But what he wants the people to do is not not rely on God, but meaning take your reliance on God and now put it into your human actions. And it's like this glorious integration of what needs to be a faith moment, right? Because they they can, they can believe in themselves all they want, but they will not be able to open the sea. That's not in their capacity uh, as humans. So they need to take their faith moment that they have and their ability to breathe deeply and close their eyes, walk forward with their faith in their hands. And that to me is also a tremendous moment of integration where they're leaving Paro behind and they're taking not God's hand, but they're putting God in their pocket and walking forward with him into the desert, or like in this that. case, into the sea. I like that image of God in your pocket. <laughs> I think that it's it's a very good point, that it's a combination of, it's. I would say, I would put it differently, not a combination just of faith and choice, but it's a choice that's founded on faith. Oh, and it's that's almost as if God is asking them, don't just have faith in me passively. 
have faith in me in the way you act. Step forward and yeah. I will make a road. Believe in me. And this is a moment when he's, in a sense, asking them to expand their horizon of the possibilities, their imagination. And you see this combination that you described so well in the song itself, by the way. When they actually sing, and Rabbanit Yael Ziegler from here, from Matana, speaks about it a lot in her shirim about the song of the sea, they start by celebrating the victory that is the parting of the sea and the drowning of Egypt. But halfway through the song, they transition to talking about the distant future. And when they talk about the distant future, they talk about it in terms of their faith that God will be with them there, that God will bring fear to the peoples that they're about to face. And that they finish the poem by saying that God will be the king. But it's clear that this kingship will be revealed in the world, not through God's actions alone, but through their work as a people who's about to come to the promised land Mm -hmm. and create life as a sovereign nation that's covenanted with God. So in their song, they're already combining these two aspects, the aspect of faith and the aspect of choice, in a way that I frankly don't think they could do a week earlier when they were leaving Egypt. Definitely not. And I think it also is an important step in their journey to eventually creating a breach with God, meaning to create a covenant with God, you have to first see yourself as someone who could be a partner with God. And when they left Egypt, they were still they were still the slaves of Paro, even when they were walking out at Moshe's leadership. And so this moment where they are pushed forward by God, I'm imagining literally like a push on the back, and, and they're keeping God with them, and they're expressing it in their song, is a prerequisite for them being able to see themselves truly as, as partners with God in the world. So I think that this is, again, when we spoke about this Parsha as being a traditional one, I think that it's it's transitional in the most foundational, emotional uh sort of self-perceptive kind of ways for what Am Yisrael had to do and become in order to be able to move forward in their journey in the desert. Absolutely. By the way, you mentioned when you were summarizing the Parsha that it ends with Amalek, or almost ends with Amalek. And a student of mine asked me in a class recently an excellent question. What's the difference between wars with the Plishtim and wars with Amalek? Why is God trying to help them not run into the Plishtim, not uh, at the beginning of Parshat B'Shalach, but then we see that when they face Amalek, they're fine. They fight. I mean, it's a difficult war, but they win. And I think the difference is that one is before the parting of the sea and one is mm. after. There's other differences, but in terms of what we're discussing here about the shift from looking back to looking forward, when they're still busy looking back and fearing who's going to chase or not chase them and not truly committed to the parade God leads, if I use again Joseph Ellis's uh, image, mm-hmm for John Adams, they are too fragile, they're too changeable to face an actual war where you have to raise arms and fight. After that, we're already talking about different people whose regrets and uh, fantasies of going back are exactly that, fantasies, and who are able to rise up to the occasion when needed. Thank you so much for this conversation. This was, as usual, unbelievably insightful. I feel like we've really been able to hone in on the the emotional and faith space that the people were occupying uh, at this moment in time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Safa. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends 
so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.